Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast, and this is episode 46. Um, kind of the first one for the year, really. I know I know, I, we crept one out in early January, but this feels like the first one for 2017. It was a conversation I recorded late last year in Auckland with Victoria Kelly. She's a, a composer, a film composer. Um, she's also been in several bands and played sessions with several bands and and she's kind of um, worked in the classical world and worked in the pop rock world. She's uh, been a crucial member of of bands um, with Don McGlashan, Neil Finn and SJD. As she says in the podcast, I've, I've been lucky enough to work with you know, three of the best songwriters in New Zealand and three three of her favourite songwriters. Um, she did all the string arrangements on Neil Finn's most recent album, Dizzy Heights. Not only that, she toured the world with him performing on stage. So we talked about all of that. Um, and we also talked about, I think, how I probably first bonded with Victoria was over her and my love of Prince. And uh, so we talked about Prince a lot. And we talked about, I guess... Um, the kind of grieving that's gone on since Prince has died and how uh, fans like us have felt about reassessing his music and his influence and uh, so we had a bit of conversation about that that kind of comes in and out of of the main conversation which is just talking to her about her her life and career um, she went to America and studied film composition with with you know some of the greats uh, so yeah I really I, I mean I'd only met Victoria one other time but I instantly liked her and I guess I've corresponded with her a bit online and I like her music and I like what she's about but I really really enjoyed this conversation I know I generally say that but this one I um, I I enjoyed talking to her and I enjoyed I hope you'll get uh, there's a sort of a, an enthusiasm and a warmth that, that comes through from her um, as well as some fascinating uh, insight and stories uh, as always we're brought to you by uh, Phantom Bill Stickers and uh, we have support too from Lafare and Yesty Boys so here we go kicking it off as my conversation with Victoria Kelly so we've only met a couple of times yeah uh, briefly I think uh, when did I meet you after an SJD gig? It was at the was it um, last year. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it was. Feels like a lot longer than that, but I think it was only the start of last year. Might have been. Yeah. And it was a great show, and um, but I, I guess we've communicated before that, and um, been aware of your work, and I think probably the first time I heard your name was through Sean talking oh, about it? you when I first interviewed him. Oh, okay. Which I think was around the time of the Dictaphone album. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably where I became aware of you, and then I found out that you'd actually done, you know, you contributed to films that I'd seen, mm-hmm. TV, you know, and so, All sorts so of forth. Things. Yeah. So you're <laughs> one of those people that um, you've there's lots there. So what I want to find out really is how you got into doing what you're doing, and um, how how you sort of moved through um, the things that you do. But I, I guess first off. Probably the thing that's most interesting is you seem to straddle, if that's the right word, the the pop, rock, commercial, uh, and indie side of things, as well as the yeah. classical side of things. Which <laughs> I don't know how many people do that. Maybe more people do that than I know. But it feels like you you're doing that in quite prominent roles as a composer and as an actual performer, yeah. a, a, a session musician, if you like. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, gosh, I it's interesting because I. I think that part of 
that it's just because I am easily distracted and passionate about almost every kind of music. Yeah. I've always been interested in it ever since I can remember, and I um, I love to try stuff. Yeah. And I think that there are just so many different ways to articulate yourself musically. I do think I probably run the risk of being a jack of all trades and a master of none sometimes. <laughs> really? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. I also, so I started off in the classical world. So I was a Studied music at school, learnt the oboe, learnt the piano, sang in choirs, this played is in from orchestras. what age, like? Well, so when I was really little. Yeah, single um, digit. Single digits, oh yeah. yeah. Um, and I, so I learnt that and then I ended up at university studying the oboe. Mm. And always, however, being a composer at heart. So my real origin and passion mm. is for contemporary classical music. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and that's kind of, I think, where I'll end up returning to. I'll yeah. have some kind of palindrome life where yeah, yeah. start in one place, go through a whole kind of whirlwind of different things and then end up in the other. They, sort of, they say you're never too old to rock and roll, but when you are, it's yeah. probably quite a convenient shift to make, <laughs> to go back to, I, I think about that, writing about music, I, I tried to educate myself a bit more in classical because yeah. I thought, uh, and I, I still think about this, I thought, like, when I make can't go to shows and feel like I don't want to and people aren't buying albums yeah. that audience still exists and still retains um, such a you know a focus on the idea of the work and the variations of the work that yeah. you can find something to say about that if you obviously I'm miles off you know having the technical facility to do that writing yet but that's sort of something in the back of my mind that I, yeah. might, I might move to yeah. commenting more on it yeah. Well, I just think that the best things about rock and roll are present in classical music, and the best things about classical music are present in rock and roll. Yeah. And they're all just different ways of expressing the same yeah. universal desire to communicate ideas or feelings or your own inner landscape or whatever it is that mm. you're trying to convey. All of those musical voices mm. can be used to that effect. And I guess another thing to say is I think we've 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 definitely bonded over a shared love of prints, but <laughs> yes. like your um, website also tells me, that, you know, it ticks these boxes that are perhaps obvious but wonderful, like Bach and Duke Ellington, yeah. and, you know, and, and, and then we'll talk a bit more about film scores and film composers, mm. but I'm a, I'm a, you probably know, but I'm a big fan of film score as yes. a, you know, I, I try to review film scores yeah. a lot, and, and I've just sort of got into even if I haven't seen the film, I used to think you had to see the film. Oh, that's interesting. I had this idea, you have to see the film, because it, it was mm. music written for yeah. the film. And, and, and I, I think I still think that, yeah, mostly. I do. Because, and sometimes some lousy films have some amazing mm -hmm. music. Um, but, yeah, I've just got to the point now where I'm, you know, because you get favourite composers, so you can go, well, I'm going to listen to whatever, you know, Cliff Martinez does, and yeah. then I'll watch the film. And, yeah. You know, I, but I know what he does and Clint Mansell and you know those sorts of people I know yeah. I know roughly what they do the sort of uh, textures they use and yeah so okay so we, what are the what are the, outside of the instruments what are the early musical passions and what you know when do you discover these things that are key like Ellington and Mark and Prince is, is it of that order or no it's not actually um, so Prince was first by a long right. shot 
So my parents were both very kind of deeply conservative, straight-laced people, mm-hmm. and they were both classical music lovers, or particularly my mum. Mm-hmm. Not players, just not listeners. players, no, not musicians even remotely. Yeah. Um, but my mum was passionate as a as an appreciator of classical music and also stuff like the Seekers and Zamzam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was kind of, we had all these records at home that were all just, the op shop classics now. Op aren't shop they? classics. <laughs> yeah. And so I used to, I grew up on that. And, and the music that I really, the first piece of music that my mum remembers me completely resonating with was The Blue Danube oh, yeah, by yeah, Johann Strauss. Yeah, yeah. And that was a song I used to sing as a tiny child. And so my earliest memory is dancing around with my sister mm. singing that. Mm. And then another early musical memory I have is The Baby Elephant Walk. Yeah. And another early musical memory I have is ABBA. But the huge one, like the one that hit me like a ton of bricks at the age of eight, was Prince. Wow. And I was just really so little when I heard him for the first yeah. time. And the first song was Little Red Corvette. Yeah. And it was the opening synth chords yeah. that just hooked me in. Yeah. I had never seen him, didn't know what he looked like, didn't know what he stood for. Just that sound. I was just too young to understand yeah. anything about him, but that sound, yeah. it's the close, clustery chords, the tensions in them. Yeah. Didn't sound like anything else anybody was doing. Yeah. And then that voice, you mm. know? And um, so I became obsessed with him and have been ever since. Yeah. Had pictures of him on my ceiling, so that would be the last thing I saw when I went to sleep. The first thing I'd see when I woke up, you know, like yeah. seriously restraining order style obsession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but because I was always like such a kind of a, I used to always think in terms of music that I loved. So I think that his musical language has just completely formed part of my neural pathways. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I was probably, it was 1999, Purple Rain and Around the World in a Day, like tracks yeah. from all of those all at once yeah. for me. Like, yeah. so, you know, similar sort of age and stage. Yeah. Like I can remember being, you know, maybe seven or eight years old when I was really, really became aware of those songs. Yeah. And I think like I first, I think maybe the first Prince album I bought was the Batman soundtrack. Oh, yeah. And that was, you know, I was a fan of the film and I went, I would have probably wanted to get it anyway, but yeah. I knew it was Prince and that was a big deal. And I think that was when, I think I kind of took some time wondering, like, is it okay to to like this guy's music to the level that you own it? Like, because a lot of my friends didn't. And, didn't they? Yeah. And then, and I felt, so I felt like in the context of my circle, I was a really early adopter of him. Yeah. And then I sort of went back and picked up all the you know, previous albums and been with them ever since. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so I understand that. Like, yeah. just, and I understand being, I, can't, I, can't, I don't have that exact single moment, but I just know that songs like Little Red Corvette and yeah. uh, With the Doves Cry and, yeah. uh, you know, all the big, you know, all those big radio, because yeah. it was on the radio where I heard them, and I think probably the biggest one for me was Raspberry Beret. Yeah. Where I just thought, like, what is happening here? Like, it's such yeah. an infectious pop song. But, couldn't pick out every part of it like you no. could with the Beatles like yeah. with the Beatles you could hear the guitars you could hear and you could hear when they get orchestrated but with yeah. that I couldn't actually work out what a lot of those textures were yeah because he is he's deeply economical yeah. but he has a very complex way of thinking musically and especially harmonically the way he layers up yeah. his vocals yeah. and the kind of harmonies that are encapsulated in those kind of big thick wads mm. of vocals are just it's beautiful yeah. what he does yeah. And that obviously comes from his love of so many other different musical forms too, like yeah. this big jazz 
kind yeah. of enthusiast, and he and it was through Prince that I then came to love Joni Mitchell. Right, yeah, yeah. But it was because he loved her. Yes, yeah, yeah. That yeah. I wanted to hear what he loved in her, yeah. so I started listening and fell in love with my own version. I, th- I think I got onto her before I made the connection between those two, but that definitely like that really helped because yeah. to me she was just a name that I thought I should check out. And, and to be honest, the first couple of times I went. I get why people like this, but it's not for me. And yeah. I think that was more the straight sort of guitar singer songwritery stuff. Yeah. When it got into the jazzy, you know, where lots of things are happening. Yeah. And I was just going to say, like, um, you see that vocally she was a huge influence on her. Yes. That whole idea of vocal production too. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And also, just there's a kind of a. I know that he's not nearly as poetic as her in his lyrics, but there is a kind of yeah, a moments where he confessional yeah. approach yeah. that he has too. Yeah, and when he's like when he's really overtly channeling her, mm. you know, like a Dorothy Parker, oh, where he really, you know, favorite favorite yeah, Prince songs where ever. he actually musically references her yeah. as well as name drops her, does yeah. that nice little you know, yeah. Obviously, I think I would have heard Silent Times before I even heard Joni Mitchell, so yeah. I, I wouldn't have picked up on that until much later. And there's a nice little revelation when that happens. Yeah. But yeah. that's him, that's kind of among his poetic best, that song. Yeah, I think so too. Because he's channeling the spirit of somebody he loves, I think. Yeah. So that's one of the songs that late at night I sit down at my roads and I put purple lights on and yeah. I pour myself a glass of wine and I sing yeah. and play that to myself and have a little tear right. <laughs> in my eye. Really? I really do. I really that's do. Fantastic. It's a tragedy, Simon. It All is. my kids kind of, they every now and then they'll come up and they'll, they'll say something about Prince and they'll pat me. Yeah. You know, well, how many kids do you have? I've got three. Three. And so, what's the sort of age range there? What are they? I've got five-year-old twins. Yeah. And I've got a ten-year-old daughter. Wow. So I, th- I thought you had two kids, right? No. And I taught them all at a very young age to go. <laughs> so they, they can all make that sound. You went to both Prince shows this year. I did. And was that the first time you'd seen them, or had it's you the actually? Second time. You went to Aussie. I went to Aussie because I was turning 40 and yeah. I thought that that would be my only, only opportunity to, to see ever him. see him. Yeah. And um, so I went by myself there and I went to see the concert yeah. with my sister-in-law. And yeah. um, and it was amazing. I kind of had a bit of an existential crisis actually yeah. at the show. Yeah. But the kind of the one that really knocked me over was the, the stuff in Auckland where yeah. I actually spent six and a half hours yeah. crying hysterically yeah. like a weird person. Yeah. You wrote a really amazing... Facebook post about it, but it really was. It was like one of the best things I've read about Prince. Oh, it was. Thanks. It was just you managed to, you know, it was told from a very personal, you know, you. I think you sort of said, I can understand why this is not everyone's cup of tea, sort of thing. But for the people who like him, yeah. this is what I got from this, and this is what like I think. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I I have that great sort of first world problem thing with the Aussie shows. I could go because we were going to America, so it's an oh, awful thing to say. You go, oh, we've already booked, booked tickets to go to yeah. America, uh, and I. But I I thought that was my only opportunity. That was going to be my only opportunity to see it. Yeah. So I was pretty. I went to the early show this year. Yeah. I, didn't get, I didn't get to both, but I went to one, and that was. In so many ways, that was enough. You well, know, he just comes like, jumping on stage and plays Charlie Brown. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. like. I just thought that was such a gorgeous thing for him to play because he's so he's so like that. He's so yes. childlike. And yeah. yeah, there was that real Willy Wonka thing mm. that came out with mm. the, the shadow okay. and the walking stick. Yeah. And, you know, I, I totally thought he was going to do a tumble. Like, I mm. thought he was going to actually reenact that. I thought that's what 
was going to happen. So do, do your kids, so they understand that you're a massive Prince fan? They do. And do they understand, I guess, the grief that you feel? <laughs> well, it's a type of grief. Yeah, no, they absolutely do. And it's really funny because I am quite embarrassed about it. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I think when you... Invest so much of your... Well, when it hits you at a young age and you find an artist, because I don't think any of my kids have found an artist yet like right. that for them. Yeah. And not everyone does, actually. Mm. Some people have got a less OCD approach to yeah, music yeah, than yeah, I do. Yeah. But, which um, <laughs> is probably a good thing. But I reckon, it's like I said before, I think it forms your neural pathways. Like, I mm. can't think of a version of myself that doesn't somehow involve what his... Um, existence yeah. represented to me because the things it's not just his music although his music is so brilliant I'm certainly not underestimating the influence of that but his absolutely uncompromising individuality yeah. was one of the huge things yeah. about him he was different from anyone and anything and didn't care and the ability to still hold on to some kind of mystique Absolutely. I think that became more and more important, you know, in the internet era. Like, he, he forged didn't a know universe. What he was own, up to. Yeah, he made a universe in yeah. his own image and then he lived in it. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah. But, you know, when you're growing up and you feel like a bit of a dick and you're a bit different and you're not, you know, you don't know what your place is in the world, mm. to see somebody like that who so clearly doesn't fit fitting, mm. you know, mm. just or, or just making a space for themselves to live in and then living there. So you grew up in one place and stayed in one place for a long time? Much, or you, yeah. Yeah, or you were... Yeah, I'm an Auckland girl through and through. Right. Born in Wellington. Yeah. Lived there for the first six months of my life and have lived in Auckland ever since. Right, with okay. the exception I, I, of a year. I thought you might have done some growing up in Wellington. But no, really. no, no, okay. no. So just my so first six months of my life. Okay. Um, so... Let's get back into your timeline a bit. I know we're going to come back to Prince. But <laughs> we don't have to. We, there's other people you, to talk about. Exactly. But you know we're going to as well. <laughs> I think you know that. But, but let's let's get into your timeline of... So when do you move forward from being a... You're obviously still a student of music in so many mm. ways. But when do you move forward from just being someone who is showing some ability and facility as a... A teenager mm. to wanting to take that to a, an actual stage. Um, always to, wanted to. Really? I always wanted to. As soon as you the got. The only thing I ever wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I can remember talking to mum about it. To be a performer, you mean? No, never, not really a performer, a composer. Oh, right, right. So to have your thing realised. Yeah. If it was you doing it, that was part of it. Yeah. But, I've uh, always been a deeply uncomfortable performer. I get horrific right. performance anxiety, I get physically sick. Really? Um, yeah, I really struggle with it day. to this day, and um, I and that's why the performing I most love is performing with other people in a completely supportive role. Mm. I, I really don't like being up the front of anything. Wow! It just makes me feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Wow! Which is weird because once you're actually in an environment with people and you're making music and people are enjoying it and your energies are responding to each yeah. other, it's the best feeling in the world. Mm. But I just I prefer that as part of a group of people than mm. I do as mm. an individual. Wow. Because yeah. I wrote that pretty silly thing, but I, I meant it most sincerely about watching you play last year. I, I said, you, watching you play with Sean, you look like Kate Bush sort of <laughs> composing a letter at a typewriter in the snow. Like, that was how I thought. I never saw that. Uh, yeah, I thought that's what I thought. I was trying to work out 
that was the image that came into my head. That's really so, beautiful, Simon. Oh, that good. brings a little tear to my eye. Good. I know that's just because you're grieving Prince, but um, yeah, no, I, that's I, so lovely. Oh my god. Yeah, I felt it was one of those lines where I went. Is this really silly? Oh, fuck it. Uh, that's the image? Like, that's what I have? I'm Nothing's gonna... ever too silly for me. Don't good, worry. Good, <laughs> good. I'll, I'll run a few things by you when I'm, when I'm feeling insecure. Um, so that, what I, the reason I'm saying that is because I do not equate that with a performance anxiety. But yeah. obviously that's, you know, that's not for me to know until you tell me. Like, yeah. how could I know that? Yeah, but I, it's interesting I... that you looked so confident on stage, you know, that you were in so part of that, that that amazing band which we'll talk about because that's an incredible band mm. but um, but that you were sort of within that band you were in your own bubble mm. in, in the best possible way mm. like completely in tune with what, in sync with what everyone's doing mm. but you look to me to be in your own bubble which maybe that's part of coping with what you're talking about yeah. maybe that is part of that it is part of that but also I think the one way in which I've been so unbelievably and kind of quite surprisingly lucky is that I have been able to play in bands with my three favourite New Zealand songwriters. Yes. Yeah. So that is Sean, Neil Finn. And Don McGlashan. And Don. Yeah, of course. And um yeah, and, wow. you know, so you're kinda of sitting there with them and it and, and I have always thought to myself, well if they think I'm alright then maybe I must I'm be doing right. Yeah, yeah. And I I wouldn't it's go as far as to bike. say that I am alright, but I but I, I sit there and I kind of look at them and I think, all right, we're in this together now mm. and um and then I just kind of try and, and listen. Yeah. You know? So Back to sort of teenage, were there rock bands or was it yes. just as well for you? Yeah. <laughs> yes, there were. Yeah. So um, when I so I was at boarding school as a young yep. girl, and then I came, and one of the reasons that I I was a really obsessive music nerd. Yeah. I always have been. Was an obsessive music nerd at boarding school. Knew that I wanted to go to university and study music, so I left school a year early and went straight to university and did this performance degree on the oboe. Mm. But at the same time, I also, as a lot of teenagers do, used to write really stupid poetry. Yeah, yeah, I still do. I, I never got out of that, so I, I don't yeah. even. I started then, but I never awesome. got out of it. And um, and I wrote a really stupid poem called "The Man from Atlantis" about Patrick Duffy, and right. it was really stupid. <laughs> yeah, and I went to I'm in a fit of God knows what kind of adolescent um, <laughs> desperate misjudgment. Went along to the Albion, mm. which is a hotel where there used yeah. to be poetry readings. Yeah. Went along and I read my poem, The Man from Atlantis, which was really wow. stupid and it rhymed and everything. Yeah. Directly before a one-armed man who then recited something very depressing about unemployment. Wow. And um, at that poetry reading mm. was a guy called Neil Dijon with his wife Yetta who was also a writer mm. and he was in a band called Ebony Sai which later became Louis XIV mm. and um, and he for some reason saw something in me yeah. and said I've got this band Yeah. do you want to maybe you know because we kind of worked out that I was a musician and everything yeah. like that in conversation so I actually formed I came up became a part of his band and we changed our name and we became a band called Voodoo Love and we turned The Man From Atlantis into a song <laughs> which was number one on BFF for wow. three whole weeks wow. Wow. <laughs> and at my 40th birthday you we reformed formed. and we played it live <laughs> yep. um, but the beautiful you know kind of how these things kind of carry on through life Neil Dijon has since fathered two young men who are alien weaponry Right. With their mate. Right. Yeah, so yeah. he's kind of alien weaponry's two thirds of alien yeah. weaponry's dad. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So he and he has always been 
a rock and roll guy. Yeah. He's just he has the same level of music nerd OCD that I do. He had yeah. a harpsichord, and it was through him that I fell in love with Bach. Wow. Oddly, wow. Okay. Mr. Kind of obsessed guitarist. Yeah. Les Pauls coming out his eyes. Yeah. And, you know everything like that. Um, also had this obsession with Baroque and Rena Renaissance music, yeah. and I had been studying music. But Bach was never the music I loved because I'd learned the piano, and um, learning the piano, you almost get the love of Bach kicked yes. out of you yeah. because it's an exercise and everyone tells you how hard it is. And there's a whole lot of weird and unfortunate mental conditioning that goes into Bach yeah. when you're a kid learning the piano. And then he played me an authentic performance. So it was a group of um, musicians who had studied how the music used to sound when he was writing, playing on authentic period instruments that had been made when Bach was alive and kind of performing it the way that Bach probably would have heard it and he played it to me one day and I that the, that whole universe opened up. Yeah. Yeah. So Mozart's kind of the melody king for a lot of people but mm -hmm. Bach is... Um, the harmony king. Yeah, and also um, a lot of the pop music melodies and more maybe just that orchestration and pop music seems to come from yeah. love and understanding of Bach, right? And or... Yeah. And I guess probably comes to some people without even knowing it. Yeah. You know, then they trace it back and go, yeah. oh, that's the antecedent for this. That's, yeah. that's where I've arrived at that from. And it is what a beautiful place to land. Yeah. You know, on, onto Bach and to kind of feel that role that he played in the, in the generation of an entire mm. Western musical sensibility. Mm. Even if you don't know it, it's, it's like you're from the universe, so you're kind of made of it. So then some cellular part of you intrinsically understands it. It's like yeah. that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's yeah. like, he's absolutely astrophysical as a composer, I think. Mm. And um, I, I don't know, harmony has always been my favourite thing about music, always. The way that chords work together, the way that notes clash and resolve, the kind of tensions and resolutions that happen within harmony. Exactly the thing I heard in those first chords of Little Red Corvette. Yep, yep. I hear in Prince, I hear in Duke Ellington, yeah. I hear in Joni Mitchell, I hear in Radiohead. Yeah. Sean Donnelly. Sean Donnelly. <laughs> yeah. Neil Finn, Don McLashen. Yeah. All of it always comes down to yeah. harmony for me. Yeah, yeah. So when do you get into composing for commission or for you know, something of yours um, gets performed? So well the great thing about studying music at university, because then I was doing composition at university as well and that's where you meet performers. Yeah. And that, and then they play your work and you write an assignment and you try and find people to play it. So yeah. that was kind of how that started to yeah. happen. Um, yeah, and then I guess as you kind of go along and you start developing your language and maybe you make make a couple of particular friends who play particular instruments. Mm. So my I had a dear friend who was a pianist and a dear friend who was a flautist and so I can remember writing music for flute. I had a dear friend who was a cellist, so then I wrote music for flute and cello, and I would write music for the piano for myself to play. Mm. So I would do all of that, and it wasn't until, um, really wasn't until I got the opportunity to write a film soundtrack that I started to explore strange instruments, instruments that were strange to me and whose players were strangers to me as well. When you say got the opportunity to do a film score, that's not something that happens to just everyone, so... It randomly happened. Right. So I was at university studying music. Mm. A young woman called Anna Reeves was making her first short film. She had no money, but she wanted original music. So she made a random phone call mm. to the secretary of the music school in Auckland, because she lived in Auckland, mm. and said, look, 
I'm making a five minute short film, I really want original music, do you have any students who you reckon might be interested? She, the secretary, she put her finger right in the middle of the wrong. <laughs> Yeah, she didn't, she gave her two names, my yeah. name and my really good friend's name. Yeah. And my really good friend wasn't that interested. And I wow. really was. Yeah, because you just that you saw it as what it was, the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. and I'd always been curious about it. Like I'd yeah. listened to music as it related to images yeah. on TV and films and I'd always been interested in that. Mm. And and so I was like, I would love to try that. And my my friend really didn't want to. It's kinda lucky that we didn't both want yeah. to do it. Yeah, that, yeah. I hate to think what would have happened then. Yeah. But um so, and the film was called La Vie en Rose, and um, I wrote for saxophone, because I had a great friend who was a wonderful saxophonist yeah. called Jason Giants, still plays around the traps these days, yeah. and string quartet, and that's what I wrote the music for. And I, in those days, you know, you had a VHS, and you had a piece of paper, and a pencil, and a piano to work with, there was none of this kind of computer stuff except for expensive computer equipment in studios, or yeah. if you're a professional, you would be, have access to that stuff, but I didn't. Yeah. So I kind of wrote all of the music blind. I watched the film, and then I wrote, wrote music that I thought would work with it, and then I kind of took my music in and we recorded it with Neil Dijon, because yeah. he also worked yeah, yeah. at um, a recording studio. That was yeah. his day job. We recorded it there. And um, then I saw the music against the film, because there was a way to do that in the studio there, and the minute that the music and the pictures came together, it was like something exploded mm. in my mind. Mm. Mm. And um, and I just thought, right, well, that's that's me now. That's yeah. what I'll do. I'm a film composer. Yeah. So what's the next step? So the next step was that then Anna had another short film. Which that film did really well overseas. Right, okay, I was, was going to say, was it met with crushing indifference like a lot of people's <laughs> first projects are? Yes. <laughs> it actually did really well. Yeah, great. And went to a lot of festivals and... At a screening of that short film was a budding director called Scott Reynolds who had made short films himself, he'd done The Game and he'd done The Box, no, was it The Game with No Rules and something else, oh no, my memory, I'm <laughs> sorry Scott if you're listening. Um, <laughs> anyway, he watched the, the, the film, loved the live music, mm. came up to me and said, um, one day I'm going to make a feature film and when I do I would love you to do the music. Mm. I was like, wow, that's awesome, I would love to and kind of gave him my telephone number and a year went by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then about a year later I heard from him and he was like, I've got money to make my first feature film. Mm. Which was the ugly horror film yeah, about yeah, a serial yeah. killer. And um, yeah. with the the blood was very black. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And he yeah. had this yeah. well, right from the outset. He had this vision for how it was going to look with these kind of streaming yes. lights and the black ink coming out of people's mouths and stuff. Yeah. And um, and so I did that. It was my first feature. Horror is the genre for film school, really, isn't it? And, to, and, and the idea that what I mean is, it's where music kind of gets noticed by every, yep. everyone. You know, people who like I watch films with my wife and say oh the music's great and she says oh, I haven't noticed it yeah. and that's fine because I, I would say one of the things about good score is maybe it shouldn't stick out and yeah. maybe that's that's fine but I'm a bit of a psycho for you know film score stuff so I'm always listening to it but uh, I feel like horror is one of those genres that horror is an amazing like a, genre for music yeah but I would argue that the true genre for music is science fiction. Oh yeah, true. Especially now it seems too. Oh, well, I think that there's maybe huge always, yeah, yeah, yeah. Precedent science fiction and fantasy. The theremin. The, yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, so of course, all my favourite film soundtracks are from science fiction films. Right. 
going back to number one at the very top of the list for, for you know music not necessarily originally composed 2001 best movie well, so made. It becomes about overall sound design doesn't it? Not totally. Just score, yeah. And that yeah. big kind of inclusive yes. atmospheric yes. world. But Planet of the Apes, yep. Jerry Goldsmith, yes. my favourite score ever. Yeah. Um, Alien, Jerry Goldsmith as well. Um, God, there's just so many amazing ones. Like Forbidden Planet. Yeah. You know? Or um, And you talked about just this morning the arrival that film arrival, which I haven't seen, but um, just that snippet of score I listened to on that yeah. Song Exploder podcast, which is a great yeah. you know, podcast of breaking down um, songs. And, and yeah. he's, he's in the middle of a sequence doing film scores. Yeah. So he's going to do all the. Um, but that sounded amazing. Like, yeah. that, that made me want to see that film because of that snippet of music. It's, yeah. one, of, it's one of the best scores I've heard for a long time, yeah. actually. I was so excited about that film because I'm yeah. such a science fiction nut. Yeah. And I was so excited to see something that looked like it was going to be an intelligent film coming yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is. I loved it. Yeah. I'm not going to give you any spo- yeah, good. spoilers, but I really loved it and I'm all my Because it's, it's a genre I have a bit of a problem with as a rule, but then the, uh, the exceptions are... Are, are truly very great. much exceptional. Yeah, they're yeah. amazing. Like I, the you know, like 2001 is obviously a, a, a really yeah. crucial film for me. Like that was an experience seeing that on the big screen for the first time. You know, yeah. sort of 20 years ago or whatever. It was amazing to see it yeah. on the giant embassy screen. Yeah. Um, so there are science fiction films that I absolutely love, but it's not something like yeah, exactly an amazing score. Van Gallus. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. Why I reckon it's so amazing for um, and how's, film music. How's that guy going to go do the sequel? I can't remember his name, but oh. he's, they've picked somebody who's actually pretty good. But um, Yeah, but you know, the director of Arrival is the yeah. director of the Blade Runner remake. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of haven't seen Arrival now. I feel like it's in it's quite safe be, hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wonder if it's going to be the composer, the same composer. Maybe it is, actually. In which case, it will it's be in be safe very hands. Very safe hands. Yeah, right. Yeah, maybe it is. I, I feel like I can trust him to, yeah, yeah. to have a really authentic go at but that it. Was you know? That was interesting because when that sequel, when the sequel was announced, and this just about never happens, a lot of I followed a, a bit of stuff about it, and there was a lot of commentary about who's going to do the music. Yeah, like that's how important the music is. Yeah, to that, or how it's be- rather how important that music has become Absolutely. from that first film. Because yeah. the the genius of science fiction is that with as a composer, you can create a world. Yeah. Yes, because it's dealing in imagined worlds and you're totally. part of bringing that. That's right. And, you know, I, I feel nothing but sadness when I go to a science fiction film that misses that opportunity. Yeah. Um, Horror works on one of those other levels, though, for music yes. too. Tension. Visceral, emotional yes. and, and level, tension. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a, a crucial thing. And most of the great things that happen in music, there's a setup around tension, you know, yeah. a, a release from it or a build-up yeah. to it. yeah. So that's why I think of horror as a really important genre too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so The Ugly. Yeah. Yes. And so, I mean, I watched that film. I quite liked it. Did it do very well? Did it do well for you? Like, was, you know, well, and for the you, way your involvement? The way that it did well for me was that it taught me, it was the biggest baptism by fire. Yeah. Um, it taught me so much about what I didn't know. Yeah. Because, you know, we were all first-timers on that yeah, film. Yeah. Scott was a first-time director. I was a first-time composer. There were a lot of us doing it for the first time. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to get that opportunity to and do I'm, that. I feel like in the context of indie, homegrown New Zealand films at that time, yeah. it must have done pretty well. Like, I it was it a did. film that opened in theatres, that, for a start. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's getting ahead of where a lot of other projects fall yeah. over. So, I feel like it... it 
I don't know how it did in terms of audience loving it or whatever, but it... People, I, you know, I, I often... It, yeah, I thought it did pretty well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and so it was after that I kind of thought, I really, I really I want to do, do this, this, but I don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah. So I then thought, I'd better try and learn what I'm supposed to yeah. do. Yeah, <laughs> So I um, thought that I would apply for an overseas... I, I looked for the very best film music course I could find in the world, yeah. which was a course at USC, and I thought if I can get into that one, yeah. I'll do what I can to go there, and I did get into it, and I did go to it. And what is, how intense was that, what did that involve? Well, let me just say that one of my teachers was Alma Bernstein. Okay, so that's, you know, pretty good. <laughs> and Alma Bernstein wrote the other yes. of my number one yeah. soundtracks, which is To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah, which yeah. is just one of those death-defyingly beautiful pieces yeah. of work that you just... And I had this memory of, um, you know, sitting in the classroom and he was sitting at the piano talking about his process of writing that soundtrack yeah. and started just playing it on the piano. And did he do the band with the golden arm? Yes, I think. he did. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, that was Alex. Oh, no, he did. Yeah. He did. Which he did do amazing. the man with the golden yeah, arm. So yeah, I, get, yeah. I get mixed up with that yes. one and Alex Moore. But, yeah. yeah, he did do the man with the golden arm, which people think or say is one of the first jazz scores ever. Yeah, yeah. who did um, East of Eden, which yeah. is another yeah. extraordinary yeah. film score. Yeah. And um, Chris Young, who did Halloween and yeah. all of that kind of horror stuff, and yeah. he was hilarious. He yeah. was an absolute nutcase. Wow. And, and the best kind of, my favourite kind of nutcase. I don't mean that in any kind of disparaging way. Yeah. Um, and it was really intense. And so there were only 20 of us accepted, so... Yeah. How do you learn, and, and how do you, what do they do to sit you down to learn that? You know how, like, how you say, how do you teach poetry to someone or a creative writing what usually happens is it's a small small group of people sit yeah. around and share ideas and work so is it essentially a similar sort of thing? No it wasn't like that they um we each every week we were given an assignment by yeah. one of our teachers to write a piece of music for a kind of a piece of film and every single week to evoke an emotion or, yep, or whatever to or whatever. To, yeah and every single week we were told what instruments we could use right. and what was available to us and every single week at the end of that week we would go to a studio where those musicians would be mm. and then we would record that music wow. live and we just did it week after week you know wow. all of these different kinds of things that we so it's that yeah. thing of like by deliberately you learn by doing limiting your palette you're broadening it overall yeah, yeah. Yeah. And usually we had kind of some we had some quite interesting ensembles to work with and they were usually small. Yeah. But once we had a full orchestra and once we had a big band and wow. you know, we had some interesting instruments and we kind of just we just wrote and wrote. So you do that for a year. A year. And then and I came back and then I settled into just going about the business of trying to write music professionally for a living. Yeah. Which involved temping for the Auckland City Council as a receptionist yeah, yeah. and answering the telephone and yeah. the operations department. Did that lead to any good good <laughs> opportunities or not really apart from a paycheck which is everyone needs. Paid for me to yeah. to supplement a career writing music. Yeah. And then over over years, over many years I kind of got to a point where I was actually surviving from writing music. Yeah. So 
you get what, what are the next sort of big projects that are important to that development yeah, yeah, but like I'm um, oh, yeah, I'm trying to think. So um, I did a, another film for Scott. I did yeah. Heaven for Scott. Yeah. Um, and then I did. I think the third one was a film called Magic and Rose, which was with Vanessa Alexander, mm. and that was a because I hadn't worked with a director other than Scott. It was yeah. really interesting to then work with another Someone person. Else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of you know and. Scott and Vanessa could not be more different from each other mm. and that experience was wonderful I loved that um, and then you know just kind of one by one just working on things I imagine there's no set way that a film composer and a director work together but are, no. there, are there certain things that you sort of have learned that you absolutely require and you know that you hope for or do you just learn to fit it with a style of direction I think I think that um, so much of that relationship is extra musical. Yeah. And that you, um, that there must be, the fundamental basis of that whole relationship is trust. So if you're able to form a basis of trust with the director, that is the first and only and kind of most important aspect of that collaborative relationship. So you can kind of work with anybody. Yeah as long as you trust each other. Yeah, yeah. And any method of communicating or working, you know, some one person might know loads about music and be able to tell you very distinctly what they want and give you examples and work with you in a way that kind of shapes the music that you write. And another person might know nothing about music and have no musical vocabulary and just go, fuck, I just, I trust you. Yeah. If they don't trust you, that is a nightmare beyond all proportions because they don't know how to tell you what they do want. Yeah. And then they don't trust you to create what they might want. Yeah. And that can, without that trust, it's a nightmare always. But if you have trust at the at the fundament of it, then um, then it works. Yeah, yeah. So of your three great Kiwi songwriters that you've worked with, is it Sean that's first? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it's like picking amongst your children. Really. No, no. I mean, I just mean timeline-wise. Oh, the first one. Yes, I don't it is. Think, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. I'll Sorry, I thought you, you were going to be No, no. Them. I'll let you off the hook there um, because <laughs> I because I feel like that's like ranking favourite anything, yeah. favourite albums or foods or whatever, yeah. they, they arrive to you at the time you need them and they feel yeah. like the best thing at that yeah. time and then you instantly try the next thing and it's, every yeah. bit is good. Um, I just know that Sean worked with Don and I figure that's the yes. link there. Uh, what was the link? No, so another kind of weird little part of the journey was that episode was the pop music side of yeah. it. Yeah, so what's going on there? So yeah. the pop music side of it was that I was in this band with Neil um, called Voodoo Love and it yeah. was a great band and I loved those guys in that band so much we had a good time together yeah. um, and then I joined APRA and I met Mike Chan who was running APRA at the time and, and Mike for some reason that I still have yet to fathom and don't understand mm. having really no knowledge of me as a musician just saw something in me and asked me to perform a song at the Silver Scrolls in like 1993 or something mm. like that and it was the year that Don was nominated for Anchor Me. And yeah. that was the song I was given to perform. Yeah. I'd never sung in public before. I cannot tell you the digestive emergency <laughs> that I had around doing that. Um, but I decided, well, I didn't have a band. You know, mm. band, I, I, I don't think I was in Voodoo Love at that stage. And I just, you know, I was thinking, well, I, I'm not a performer. I've never done this before. What am I going to do? So I just did what I knew how to do, which is why I got a string quartet. Mm. And arranged it for that. And... and I got a fretless bass player as well, and we performed it like that. Mm. And um, that was a 
huge gateway for me because I got a lot of opportunities come through that. Yeah. I was asked to be in the straw people. So that was how I started getting involved with them. Mm. Um, and then I arranged strings for the straw people and then I arranged strings for other bands. And then, you know, it just kind of all unfolded that way. So what does the way. straw people work like? Because there you've got a guy who's, I mean, you want to talk fingers and pies. That's a, <laughs> you know, that's Paul a... Gasoline. Yeah, that's a guy who's... Uh, you, you talked about, um, you know, worrying that you were a jack of all trades and master of none. He, he's kind of like a master of all trades, I isn't know, yeah. I know. Paul Cassily is just such a spectacularly smart and interesting... Worryingly, and I would imagine. Funny. Yeah. yeah, he is intimidating, yes. absolutely. Yeah. And as a young person, I found him extremely intimidating. Yeah, yeah. But, but you recognise the opportunity. Yeah, and that's, that's no reflection on him. You know, mm. that was just how I saw him. But, mm, um, mm, mm. you know, I just, I have such utmost respect for him. Mm. And um, yeah, so so we worked together and we've stayed in touch over the years and yeah. everything like that, you know, because I, I did limited stuff with this movie. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of such an interesting introduction to a side of the music industry that I didn't really know about yeah, and yeah. had no experience of, other than through this kind of really niche metal band that I played the yeah. oboe in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were the days, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you, yeah, okay, so what, what, you do a few more films. Mm-hmm. You do. It all just mixed together at just, that point. Yeah. I, I worked with um, Fiona McDonald at that time. I worked with the Peter Stubbs at Hit List. Yep. You know, time goes by. I do a few more soundtracks. Work with um, Humphreys and Keane on the yeah. Overflow, which oh, is one yeah, of the favourite things I've yeah. ever done. What an album that is. Oh, it's a beautiful album. It's one that, that's one of those albums that has like its own cult audience, isn't yeah. it? Like the people who know that album yeah adore it it's a beautiful I remember getting that album to review and just going you know what what an incredible album and I mean I knew who they were but that sort of exists in its own space outside of what they'd done previously yeah yeah Yeah. because I think you know like when it comes down to being interested in lots of kind of music every single thing you do is a voyage of discovery yes you know and you just kind of step into world after world after world after world and you come out of it different because you were in there and you know it just kind of feeds curiosity and fills up your brain and gives you more things to add to your voice and all of that kind of stuff more friendships more creative relationships with other people yeah so um what yeah so after after that I seem to remember going through a bit of financial strife. It kind of, you know, because the other thing about a creative career is that it ebbs and flows and there's no security to it. So then I kind of reached a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I might have to go and get a proper permanent job. So I spent a year working for a a recruitment consultancy. And over the course of that year, I decided I really didn't like doing that kind of work and yeah. I really wanted to go back to being a full-time composer, yeah. so I did. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a kind of a blip in the middle of it all. And, um, yeah, just kind of, just ploughed on. The great thing about the New Zealand environment is that, you know, it's so intimate that you kind of meet one person after yeah. another and eventually you're part of this kind of connected web. Yeah. And everyone kind of shoots little neurons at each other over time and yeah. everything infects everything else and yeah, in yeah. the best possible way. Yeah. So I kind of came to work with Sean. Oh my God, now remembering all of this through Paul Cassily. Right. Because Paul and I were asked to write the music for a radio drama called Claiborne by a mutual friend of ours called Andrew Dubber. Andrew Dubber 
very dear friends with Sean. Mm. So I met Andrew, and Paul was not able to do the music for that show, so he recommended that I work with his mate, Joost Langeveld, who mm. I'd never met. Joost and I met at Andrew Dubber's house, hit it off completely, and thus began a really fruitful musical collaboration that lasted for many years. Mm -hmm. At the same time as we were working on that, Sean Donnelly was making his first album ever by cobbling things together on Andrew's computer in the yeah, side yeah, room. Yeah. And so I met Sean because he would shuffle through, and kind of introvertedly shuffle through Andrew's apartment and go off and make noises yeah. in the room and I really didn't know him. Yeah. And then I heard it. Yeah. And then I was like, what? So is that the one that is just called Three? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Lullable. Yeah. Lullable off that. I heard that because I just... You know, that just all happened, yeah. and I used to hang out with Andrew and everything like that, and then Andrew said, oh, you should listen to some of the stuff that my mate Sean's making. And I listened to him, and I was just blown yeah. away. Yeah. And um, anyway, so then I kind of knew Sean on and off, and then one day I was hanging out with Andrew, and Sean was like, oh, I'd love to get you to do some strings on my album that I'm making. Mm. And that album was, um, was it Songs from Addict to Find What Came First? No, that was Southern Lights. Would you do uh, Superman? Yeah. So that was the one, yeah, Southern, Southern Lights. Southern Lights. Yeah, just before that. Yeah, yeah so that was the yeah. first thing I did with Because I was going to say, Three went nowhere, essentially. Like, yeah. it's a really cool album for people that get to hear it, but it was Lost Soul Music was the one that yeah. kind of was his breakthrough. Mm. And then, really, Southern Lights is what, mm. what, what made him, you know, known for, I guess, what he does now. Like, yeah. you know, he's every album with him is different. But, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what he what he said to me, I interviewed him when uh, Dictaphone came out, and what he said to me was, what really made me sort of prick my ears up about you and your career was him saying this one phrase. I, I think I said to him um, something about how his compositions, everyone was so different from anything else he did, like album to album and song to song, but that you could see that they were connected and he said Victoria Kelly tells me that they've all got the same nose yeah and I just love that phrase because I think you know fuck you should have my job that's what I was trying to say and get out of it <laughs> and that is the thing that made me interested in what you did like that line oh, from wow. him like, that made me go you know I'm pretty sure I'd heard your name before that but that was what made me go well I want to find out more about what she does because I like yeah. the way she thinks <laughs> so just to let you know that's, that's sort of where I cover I've I guess your career it. from. You'd always, always wondered, of course, no, you had nose. No, I know. I've always had a nose fetish. <laughs> right. I was going to say you, you'd always wondered. Yeah, right. But, well, but it, it, that is exactly it. it like, has, they are related. You know, yeah. it is that thing. And that's the nose is often the thing in family features that yeah. sticks out for people, isn't yeah, it? Or, yeah. or, or, Quite literally, Simon. <laughs> or the eyes either side of it. You know, yeah. it, is, yeah. it is that um, that feature. Okay, so Superman's a pretty special song. Yeah, that's and, and again, so working on that song um, made me realise what a genius he was. Yeah. Because that is a genius song. Yeah, it is. And yeah. Um, I was always, I can always remember thinking, I, I think that it is an absolute crime against humanity that that song doesn't have a silver scroll. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, or any, you know, it's, it's one of the best songs that's ever yeah. been written here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just so beautiful. You know, the... You little hands, little fingers. Yeah. You know, like little shoes, little sorry. Yeah, yeah. Little shoes, little fingers. I was just like, who writes that? Yeah. 
And, and immediately, what you visualise is this tiny little person in the beautiful... Oh, I don't know, it's and just everything about it just makes me get goosebumps. Well, talking it. to you now and thinking about the song, uh, it has pretty much all of those components you're talking mm, about, yeah. about what really makes a piece of music sing, right? Mm. From your arrangement that kind of kicks it off to... I always love uh, the the placement of how the drums come in underneath yeah. that. You know, that's that's kind of yeah. so perfect. And, yeah. and it's just a series of little perfect notions. Yes, it is. Following, perfect notions, yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, sort of following one another and being threaded through each other. And, yeah. 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 Because that, I mean, that's the album that, like, I'd heard Lost Soul music, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, on the back of probably reading, you know, probably Nick Bollinger writing about it or something yeah. like that. And, I, and I'd seen Sean play with with Don, yeah. and I knew that he was really talented, but it really was that album, that yeah. Southern Lights one, that made me a fan. And let me let you in on a little secret about right. Sean Donnelly. He doesn't like Prince. Yeah, does he not? Not really. He doesn't That's hate Prince. Yeah, yeah, but he's not the fan that you would hope he would be. No. Yeah, right. No, he doesn't like and he's, funk. And he's really a bass player by he trade, is. so That's why right. does he not like funk? I know. <laughs> I could see how bass players would get... Uh, upset by fun like, I can by too. being defied by but the weird thing is that there's so much about his bass yeah. lines that it's funky oh yeah when he played up uh, last year when he did this solo uh, thing and he was opening for Anika and mm. then he joined her on stage and played bass on a couple of tracks and I uh, that was that's the first time I've been out. I actually yeah. had met Sean at the end of that gig and I said to him you know, fuck! It's great to hear you play bass again. Like you're yeah. so good at it. You're such a you're such a bass player for everything that you do yeah. and are good at. Yeah. You must enjoy slipping into a band context. He's yeah. like, oh, I'm loving it. You know, I'm yeah. having a blast doing it. It's like it comes across. Like, yeah. He's so good. Um, so the Bellbirds forms out of yeah. that yeah sort of connection, doesn't it? It does because one day Sean rang up and said, I just want to put this band together because I just think that Sandy's got a an amazing voice I want to write songs for her to sing yeah so and yeah so we just it was Sean's idea and he had all these songs that he thought would work for our kind of he wanted to make something that was acoustic and intimate and friendly and lots of beautiful vocal harmonies that featured Sandy as a singer and she's so wonderful yeah she's great and you should hear the stuff she's writing now solo stuff right awesome awesome but anyway um, yeah so we kind of had a couple of rehearsals and just and that was how I really got to know Don. Right, I've, I've yeah. done a little bit of work with Don before. Yeah, yeah. Done a bit of arranging for him, but the one time I ever did string arranging for him, he just had some appalling kind of accident or operation or something like that. So when he came into the studio for the session, he was like totally out of it yeah. on painkillers yeah. and and shaking and kind of sweaty <laughs> and like, but still trying really hard to focus and concentrate. Yeah. So I, I, we didn't we didn't really connect as much as we could have on that particular occasion, but um, then kind of got to know each other through that Bellbirds yeah. thing, which was just the best fun ever. So that band records an album that doesn't get released. Yeah. Where is that? Will that ever see the so, light of yes, day? By the hammer of Thor, yes, yes. it will, Simon. I, as I understand <laughs> it, you, you basically sort of between you all or whatever start having kids and other careers yeah. and, 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 and different things happening in your careers yeah. it's one of those situations it totally so is. you and can't it, find time for it yeah and you know you kind of record a few things and you've got a vision for those things the writing and the rehearsing and the recording is one thing but the kind of the, the um, exactitude of assembling yeah. and putting it together and Sean wanted to, to be able to do that yeah. and Sean 
kind of got waylaid and then he wanted to make his own music and yeah. then he got waylaid further and then he had another album and then there was something else and yeah. you know kind of but we frequently and have recently spoken about making sure that it finds the light of day although you know by now who knows we might hate it yeah 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 so when did you last hear it um when you made it years, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah wow we called if it was if it was as good as i'm sure it is wouldn't it be cool to just spontaneously have that as like a vinyl release that would be a you nice know how cool would that be yeah for, yeah, for because the fans of all of you guys individually would, would gravitate to it, as well as the people that do remember the, those shows. and Yeah. You know? I don't think I've got any fans. I really? Think, yeah. I think Sean, Don and Sandy do. Yeah. I think people who, I think people who well, are curious about that They're obviously fans. They've got, a quite, they've got a few good fans. You're, <laughs> you're in a position where your fans are the people that end up employing you. You know what I mean? Like, Neil Finn yeah. will be a fan of you. Sean is a fan <laughs> That's of That's a funny idea. Don't you think? Maybe. Don't, don't you think? I well, mean, I, possibly. I, I, that seems to me to be kind of an outrageous idea. Well, I think they either are. <laughs> they would be my well, fans. I think they certainly are, and if they're not to begin with, they become one because you yeah. fulfil the role for them. Yeah. So, I mean, you say you work with Neil Finn, there's only a finite you know, number of people. It's, it's large over the years, but it's still a finite number of people who've done that, and that seems to be a... An inner circle that's pretty important to the people that are in it. It's pretty special for anyone who's gravitated mm. around it. Mm. Um, the music that guy makes is frequently amazing. Mm. Uh, if he does have an off day, uh, it's probably still better than what most people could ever hope to do. Yeah. You know, like he's pretty exceptional. And so we, I know I have in the past, hold him to probably a ridiculously high standard now that is perhaps unattainable. But you didn't just work with him. You I, I, I mean, I understand this is what you do, but you're charged with doing things like actually arranging strings for him. Is yeah. there an intimidation or, or a concern around working with someone at that level who can... I mean, he's the only guy in New Zealand, right, who can go around the world pretty much, you know, demand who plays with him, uh, you know, to, uh, be offered to sit in with, you know, members of Radiohead, the Smiths, whatever, you know? I just try not to think about that. <laughs> Because I think actually what it comes down to in the end is that you sit down with somebody and it doesn't matter who it is and they play you some music and they say, what can you hear? Yeah. And then you go, well, I can kind of, and that's exactly how it happened with him. He said, oh, I might get you to, the first thing I did with him was the Hobbit song. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he played it to me and he said, what do you reckon? And I said, well, I, I reckon we could try this and that and blah, blah, blah. And at that point he could have gone, that's not what I was hearing. Yeah. Um, and then that would have been the end of it. Yeah. And that certainly happened before, you know, but um, with other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. he was like, okay, you know, cool, that sounds like a good idea. So, you know, so then we ended up recording it in this kind of extraordinary way and, um, and it was really, it was really great. And um, then we played it live together down in Wellington. And I kind of went down and I played keyboards and I remember, I will remember this forever, we had this moment where one of the songs we were rehearsing for this show was we were playing, um, oh god, what was it, what was it, it was stuck. It's the, it's, it's, I got you. It's not that I forgot in the song, it's just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know that amazing keyboard line that Eddie Rayner did on the synthesizer, what a genius that man is. Mm. Um, you know the do 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 do
and it's just this kind of meandering yeah, yeah, yeah. little kind of keyboard line that goes through that song. So we were rehearsing it and I had listened to it but it's actually quite hard to make out the exact notes because it's always changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind of learned it to the best of That's my ability. That's kind of part of his genius, isn't yes, it? Yes, quite, quite a few of his parts are like that on those Huge. records. Yeah, yeah. And no, actually, I think no one else can play them like he no. does. Because he's, he's kind of like a... Um, a needle and thread working his way through those splitting songs. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I was really conscious of that. Yeah. Really conscious of that, you know, walking in the footsteps of giants kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'd kind of worked it out to the best of my ability, but I thought, you know, maybe in the live environment it's kind of okay if it's not exactly the notes and everything like yeah. that. We had this moment in the rehearsal where Neil turned around and goes, that's not right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, um, it's a little bit. And he was like, well, didn't you listen to the recording? And I was like, yes, I did. And he got, he got pissed off with me. Yeah, yeah. And um, we kind of had this tense moment where he was kind of trying to show me how to do it and I was failing spectacularly. And I can remember going home from that rehearsal and thinking, oh, I probably will never work with Neil again. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we did the show and everything like that and it was fine. But then I did hear from him again and he said, look, I've got this album and I'd love to get you to have a listen to some of the songs and see if there are some strings that can work in there. And I was really actually surprised to hear from him. Yeah, right. Because I really thought that in that moment in yeah, that rehearsal yeah, I'd failed him forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, you'll get through that gig, but that'll be it. Yeah, I, I really did think <laughs> yeah. that. Um, wow. And so, anyway, again, it just came back to that moment where I then I wandered into the studio and I sat down with him and we listened to the first song and I was like, oh, I love that song. And he was like, oh, do you? And I was like, yeah, I reckon you could do this, you could do that. Blah, blah. And I was like, okay, cool, let's give it a go. Mm. And that's how, you know, that's how we worked together and mm. how we continue to work together. And you end up playing shows in the band well yeah so then we kind of he recorded the album and he was like and this is the thing about him he's he's very spontaneous yes and also in a position to be spontaneous yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. so he kind of thinks of something and obviously very to open to yep. the idea that anyone can come in with something totally that he can spot that they're going to be able to bring it yeah or that they already have and they're in the fold yes and yeah. he also i think and i feel gosh i feel kind of so presumptuous talking on behalf of another person but yeah yeah my senses. Look, we all feel like we own the Fit in his songs, <laughs> I think, you know, on yeah. some level. I just think he's a person who loves to challenge himself. He doesn't, yeah. like, he would never be a person who would sit back and go, yeah, all right, that's all right. Mm. He, you know, he would always be wanting to, like, change it up or mix it up or do something else or throw, surprise something or whatever. Yeah. And so he was like, oh, look, I reckon we should, I want to just do a little tour just to kind of promote the album before I do the great big tour. Yeah, yeah. I said, wouldn't it be great to do it with live strings? So, you know, like I could go and you could go and maybe we'll get a drummer and then we'll get some string players in each of the places we go to. We'll just make it like a, a main centre's yeah, tour. Yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, really? Okay, well, that sounds amazing. So what are you thinking? Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch. And he kind of looked at me and said, no, no, no. I was thinking London, New York, LA. <laughs> <laughs> and I just felt like a dick. Isn't that, isn't that just... <laughs> sort of say how Neil Finn thinks versus just about any other musician in New Zealand like, that that is instantly achievable and yeah, attainable yeah. to him yeah that's what I mean like, yeah. so there's off, nothing big yeah. about that that's the world that no that's just the world he's in and so off we go with Chris O'Connor yeah. we went off and we played in London and we played in who York. you know through working in Sean's band yes uh, among probably many other things, because he plays in about 48 bands. He does. And, and he is amazing. Whose musicality and yes. his approach to music is like, it's like he gives you a warm, feathered yeah. nest. 
that you can just curl up in, yeah. you know? It's this organic, beautiful, kind of undulating thing that he gives you to play with. Yeah, I feel like with him there's... I mean, I know Chris a little bit. I watched him play, particularly when he lived in Wellington and was mm. very immersed in the improv scene. Yeah. And the first time I saw him play, it was really a straight-ahead sort of jazz gig, and he instantly became my favourite drummer. Yeah. I was amazed by him. But I sort of feel from talking to him that it's almost like there are no bad ideas. No, it's just bad execution. Like, if you get it wrong... On that level, so be it. And then he's also of a type that he will help a person turn it into something new, you know what I mean? But he's open to any single idea. He is of singular character, Chris O'Connor. He is um, enduringly cheerful and positive. Yeah. And has an absolute open tolerance for any level of chaos and uncertainty. And in fact thrives on it. And I think that mixture of good cheer and risk... Yeah. It's just a beautiful thing in a musician. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so you go and do those shows? Yeah, and that was awesome fun. Yeah. And then we ended up doing some more. Then he was like, oh, we could do it. We've got to do it in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. We could do it in Australia. So we went and did that, and yeah. that was really fun. Again, you know, the beauty of working with him is that he can um, work with amazing musicians. So we had the very best string players that you could ever hope yes. to, to work with, and that yes. was a wonderful experience as well. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. But again, kind of mitigated by the fact that when you're on stage with Neil, no one is looking at you. No, you're there, you're there to, support. to support the work that he's yeah, made and yeah. to take your part in that kind of general performance. And that's kind of such a happy, wonderful thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So those lineups he had around that last album, you know, I think all of the players really on stage, I, I remember watching those shows and thinking, I saw it twice. Mm. And I remember thinking, like, you could see the moments where so many of the musicians were kind of like, you could see the fan and the musician on stage. Yeah. Because he's got this, cat, not only is it him, but it's this, the catalogue is near I endless. I know. And so, you know, I saw it and and, and I, I guess these people are perhaps like this anyway, but you see it in Chris, you see it in you, you definitely see it in Lisa Tomlinson and Jesse, mm. you know, like, mm. just the sort of joy, like, oh, we're going to do this song now. Mm. you probably already know that but just with those chords hit you're like because you probably all have your own story about when you first heard that song you yeah, know what I mean like, yeah, yeah yeah so it's quite an amazing so much as you guys are just there to support and the, the onus is on him there was something to be very warm about watching yeah. you know everyone operate in those yeah. on those shows tell you what though it's pretty nuts to do something like write a string arrangement for Don't Dream It's Over yes and then play yeah. it on stage yeah you know, or the, my favourite one. Well, that's um, what I mean about uh, intimidating. Like, not yeah. not so much his character, but the the tower of these songs. Yeah. You know, it isn't so much about whether he's the taskmaster or not. Yeah. It's it's about the weight of yeah the song the song that already exists, and, and and that's right. The expectation around you fucking with something that already exists <laughs> and people knowing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People, people liking it just the way I was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice try, but <laughs> <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> My favourite one, I think, was the was One Step Ahead. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I loved I, I had always wanted to do that. He had said, is there anything you particularly want to do? And I said, yes, that I want to do One as, Step Ahead. That strikes me as one of the songs of his that he's been the mo- has been the most sort of malleable in his... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've... Because I mean, I've watched him a lot over the years, and mm. I feel like that's the one that sticks out as being that he's always had a little bit of a play with that one. Yeah. You know, never that's tried to just straight replicate the record with mm, that one. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, 
do you, you know, you experience this performance anxiety. What's the other end of that? When you go and do like a massive show or a tour with Neil Finn and you're playing to an, an audience that is hanging on every note and word um, and you've got comfortable in your skin on stage by at least some point in the evening, I imagine, <laughs> is there a come down that is tricky around that for you or is... Is it conquering that initial anxiety that's the, the winner, then you're okay? Do you, do you return home or get off the stage and there's a, you know, do you know an you, unpacking that's tricky? Yes and no. I actually find it far harder to come down from finishing writing right. a piece of music yeah. or finishing working on something. So let's say I've done a film soundtrack or, some, or worked on a piece of music that's been performed. That yeah. knocks me yeah. around. Um, because it's, it's just it's, the intensity of living with every and making that thing yes. has become a habit. Yeah, you know, like you do it concentratedly over this period of time, it becomes a habit, and then you have to somehow break that habit when you stop doing it. It's just about everything secondary to doing that work. Completely. I mean, I, you've got children, so you've got yes. family stuff, but I, I imagine like the the normal routines of eating and stuff go out the window, Completely. And, and you become immersed in just that work. That's right. And a couple of years ago, I actually. You know, had to face up to that reality of how com- how incompatible living and working that way was with having a family. Yeah. And I actually made the decision to kind of step back and away from composing like that because I had got to the point where I had ceased to love it. Right. And um, you know that broke my heart so much that I you know I just thought well I'm, I've either got to keep doing it and feeling that way about it, which I think is probably my idea of hell. Yeah. Or find something else to do that kind of repl- you know creates a more stable yeah. Yeah. environment. So that's yeah. what I did actually. I yeah. so I've really I still work with Neil, which I love, and there is music that I still write. And I'm going back into my kind of contemporary classical world now yeah, yeah. because that's where I it's actually probably the most frightening world to live in of all. But um, but also the one that I've just always loved. Yeah. As yeah. well. And so you fall out of love. Of, of music in some sense, but then you do something like go to a print show and that brings it yes. all the way back on another level. I, I fell out of love with writing music for yeah, hire. Yeah, yeah. For hire. Yes. And it was the for hire aspect that I wanted to leave behind. It feels like the... I've always thought this about um, the sorts of jobs you do, those sorts of roles, and I, I guess particularly I think with film composition it's an interesting one because all of those things you just described about being so immersed in it, and yet ultimately you are creating something for someone else's mm-hmm. vision. Mm-hmm. You are a supporting player yep. at best in the grand scheme. Of, yep. even Absolutely. If, even if your or Jerry Goldsmith's score, you know, sells millions of copies, wins awards, it's still a secondary yeah. part. Actually, really, it's kind of a little bit similar to being on stage, but in a sporting role yes, on stage. Yes, I love yeah, that about film yeah, composing too. Yeah, I love the fact that you're part of a whole. I think that's one of the really beautiful things about it. Yeah, because you know, you were saying earlier in our conversation when you, you know, what your experience of a film score is. Ideally, when it's perfect, yeah, you both have an utterly integrated piece of music mm. that you cannot take away from a film. But when you do take it away, it's an utterly beautiful piece of music by itself too. Yeah. But it doesn't work if it's a beautiful piece of music and it doesn't integrate with the film. I would still call that a bad score, yeah. even if the music was amazing. I would, you know, 
and and I don't I don't mean by that that you shouldn't go to a film and notice the music and have it stand out because if you're a person who listens to music, there's no way you can not do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like you know, when you can kind of are aware of how good it is, mm. you know, it's it's those moments when it's enhancing scenes mm. when it's hitting its points. Yeah, and through doing that, it's allowing the scene to hit its point. Yeah, you know, on a on a, on a different level or whatever. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's those sorts yeah. of things. But still, you put so much of yourself into doing that. Yeah. Like, just physically into being able to create that. Yes. You, you, you live with it nagging in your head. Yeah. All Absolutely. Hours. And you don't sleep and you yeah, don't get dressed. And the children yeah. come over and go, Mummy, and you go, go away. Yeah. <laughs> And then you kind of look at them in the eye and you realise that they absolutely don't understand why you've just said that to them. Mm -hmm. They don't understand why you can't take your mind away from what you're doing and give your attention to them. And I, you know, that made me uncomfortable after a while. So you stood yourself down from Sean's band? I did. And what else? You sort of reduced your roles across the board? Yes. Yes. And then had a complete break kind of thing? Or you... you you know, you sit down at the keyboard. I had a complete break. Right. Other than the stuff that I was doing with Neil. Yeah. And um, went and got a job. Yep. You know, but do, doing something, I don't think I could ever do something I didn't feel passionately about. Yeah. But I knew that I was going to have to find something to do that I felt like I could do, and I had no idea what else I could yeah, possibly yeah. do because I've been a musician for my whole yeah, life. Yeah. And, you know, like it's like, well, you know, show up with your CV and say, I've got a bachelor's degree yeah. in performance oboe. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, great, well, in this world of internet, IT, kind of crazy technology, yeah. um, that's going to be very useful, Victoria. Thank you for coming to see us. <laughs> um, and then you, when do you start, I guess, are you still in the process of finding yourself moving back into composition and I am working on a commission for Voices New Zealand, yeah. um, which will be a large choral work. Yeah. And I, you know, a few months ago, started just putting my head into that and kind of felt that happy feeling of how glad I was to be writing music again, yeah. and that has been wonderful. Yeah. And um, you know, I think you know, there are still people that I would love to work with and things that I would love to do, and if those exper- if those experiences become available to me. I'm sure, you know, that I could try and find a way to do them. Yeah. But that would be, um, you know, a re- I'm not out there trying to. I'm not out there trying to live from yeah. it anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned even before, like off tape, getting a bit teary from time to time, still about Prince. Oh, no. And we talked a bit about that. And I was going to bring it back to that only to say, like, um, it's been quite a strange year for for a lot of reasons for a lot of people. But for people interested in music, we sort of mark these significant, you know, Bowie would have kind of been enough for people to to deal with. And then Leonard Cohen just recently, and, and, you know, so many others. Um, Prince obviously being the the big one for for you and me, and and probably lots of other people. But is there something in, in that that makes you feel compelled to soldier on with your own music is there something totally yeah totally because you know especially because Prince himself was so utterly uncompromising about every other aspect of his life yeah and actually it's interesting because I have often reflected upon the fact that he deliberately you know or no perhaps not deliberately that's a presumptuous thing to think but 
he did not have all of those other pressures. He created a universe for himself to live in yeah. that kind of divested himself of all of those other kinds of pressures and responsibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody knew that his life was music. If he wanted to make music with somebody at three o'clock in the morning, he would bring them up and he'd say, hey, do you want to come in and do this? And they would go, yes, I would like to. Mm. And then they'd kind of, sh- he, could, he could just absolutely make his world work the way he wanted it to work. Mm. And I so admire that, but it is so impractical in the context yeah, yeah. of a normal human life. Yes. And I don't think his was a normal human life. No, think, no. You know. And it was also, all of that was built out of a, a model for consuming and appreciating music that doesn't yeah. exist anymore. Totally yeah. There's that as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, he had phenomenal, it took a while, but he had still pretty quickly pretty decent success and then absolutely phenomenal astronomical yeah. success. I yeah. mean, if he had not made Purple Rain, I don't know that he would have been set up the way he was. Mm. You know, I think mm. that was the thing that... Because it was really, that was when, you know, Paisley Park was constructed and, 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 yeah. and he went into his little Wonka cave, wasn't yeah. it? So, yeah. you know, like, 1999 was pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, maybe if he never made Purple Rain and he made Around the World in a Day, maybe people would think more of that album, or maybe mm-hmm. they'd think less, I don't know. But obviously there'd be sub-hits, and yeah. Side of the Times is fucking impressive, but, oh. but... You know, I think Side of the Times is a better album than Purple Rain, but Purple Rain is the thing that created him, really. Yes, it is. In terms of that, giving him those options you're talking about, being able to build that yeah. fortress and live how he wanted to. That, you know, and it, and it came at a time when, um, I guess, Board of the USA did a similar thing for Bruce Springsteen yeah. after toiling away, you know, being popular, yeah. but that yeah. record sold so much. Yeah, and yeah. you know, Prince was such a huge fan of Bruce, Bruce yeah. Springsteen actually. It's another, I've never quite gone the Bruce Springsteen route. But, yeah. um, I admire him very much as a songwriter and I like I like lots of things he does but I also get bored with him. You know, mm. I think, I've never seen him and I'm, I'm still seesawing about whether I should try and get to the show next year and then I think well, four hours of Bruce Springsteen sounds horrible, two hours sounds amazing. You know, I, but if I left at half time I wouldn't, I wouldn't get everything that I should get from Look, just yeah. go. Yeah, I think just I should. Just the bulletin, I, Well, that's the thing. I think that's what this year's sort of, that's what it said. You know, I, I'm i really glad I got to see Leonard Cohen. You know, that yeah. show was amazing, and I would have thought that anyway. And I didn't, it's a different kind of, I don't feel a huge grief. I feel very sad about him passing because I think he was a singular yeah. talent and, a, you know, a very unique person in the musical sphere. Mm. But he was 82. Yeah. You know, and he, he, finished very strongly yeah. and for me David Bowie was nearly 70 and that is too young but he had been very crook for 10 years yeah. you know there'd been different versions of the story and all of that but he had you know moved away from the limelight and was living out his years and yeah. he sort of stage managed his death so beautifully <laughs> he um, did. I don't feel anywhere there the, the thing with Prince was the you know, maybe people laugh about saying cut down in his pride, but oh. man, that sh- those shows we saw, that, yeah. was, that was still a musician in, its, in yeah. his pride. And the thing that those shows made me feel too was that, the, you know, that that's, he may, I think he, I think he sacrificed everything. I think he said, you know, and his, that's what makes his death also so very yeah. sad is that he, he died in order to be able to continue doing those things. He like I keep on thinking of that, that image of him coming on stage in the cane and he leaps yeah. on like a kid 
he must have been in so much pain. Yeah. You know, he would have yeah. been full of drugs to kind of get out there on that stage. Yeah. But he took them so that he could do it because it's what he, it's all he cared all about. All he did, yeah, all he did, all, all he cared he about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I, I keep sort of, perhaps you, you're the same, you go over the, there's been some pretty good, good writing about him since he died. Um, you know, maybe no one's got really, will ever get close to really what he was about, but there has been some good. And you go back to some of the music, and, and, and it kind of has been great seeing the clips mm. online that mm. weren't there, mm. like, the, you know, um, <clears throat> so, so much great footage. But um, you just kind of keep arriving at these little revelations. Like someone posted a quote the other day from him um, that he said something about, he didn't see what was so special about you two winning a Grammy. He could do what they did, but there's no way they could do Purple Rain or whatever. And I just went, that's exactly it. He could, <coughs> he could actually do yeah. what anyone else was doing. He could, yeah. he could do it. He covered Radiohead. He covered Led Zeppelin. He, yeah. You know, he could do it, and no one else could do what he did. And I think yeah. that that, in as much as that, still leaves it up in the air, which is perfect. Still has mystique around it. That yeah. is, that is kind of what he symbolised to me. Was yeah. he was a guy whose ability was just, you know, and in that solo piano show, yeah, to see him sort of dialing into the peanuts thing, or you know, playing such just, just, you could see him, and you, you know, you said you could see him, you could like watch him think, you could actually mm. see that happening, you could see him deciding, I'm going to take this into a little gospel vamp. You know, mm, mm. I'm going to do this. Mm. I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to stop and work the crowd for a bit because I yeah. also do that. Know how to do that. You know, yeah. it was like a little showcase. Yeah. But he was having, it felt like he was having fun doing it. Yeah. It was in no way a chore beyond what you just said about like the toll that it was perhaps mm. taking on his health. Mm. But but you could see what he got from it. Yeah. Yeah. And everything else was worth it towards the, you know towards that goal. Yeah. And I think one of the things I've always felt with him was amazed by him with is, is exactly that work ethic, the mm. idea that, you know, it might be an impossible task to operate like that, but just turning up and doing the work. Yeah. Just, you know, not everything he did was amazing, but mm. there's sort of something in everything. Like, a, I think it's right around today that um, emancipation turns 20, and I Emancipation think, yeah, which is crazy because that's like one of the you think of that one as of the one of the recent ones. Yeah, so that's twenty years old right around now, and you it's know. Making me think about how old <laughs> I am. Sorry, but if there's ever a case for an album of his to be <laughs> kind of unpacked a little bit more, it's that one because yeah, yeah. there's that's sort of just been written off by people who never even listened to it. They just went daunting three albums, no way. Yeah. But actually, there's some really cool stuff in there. Yeah. You know, no, it's not three great albums. It might not have even been two great albums, yeah. but there is some. There's an album's worth of really good stuff in there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Better than better than some of his other stuff. But you know that's interesting too because you kind of get to a certain point in your career where actually maybe three albums should have been one album but yeah. no one's going to tell you that that's exactly it that's the downside <laughs> of building that universe isn't it I yeah. want to do this and I can yeah. so I will and that's not always a good idea yeah. so you I mean you operate in a different sphere where you're anything you do I mean you know I guess you can you can compose whatever you want and people can decide whether they want to play it or not but when, yeah. it's, when, it's, when it's a commission piece there are kind of editors around it in a sense there yeah. are constraints there are yeah. you know and I think it's just as well. I think. Yeah. I think. I mean, I, I have learned over time, and film music, writing film music, does this completely. Um, 
redistributes your ego. Yes, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> and, um, and I think over time, I've, I've, and especially you know now as I approach classical music, um, it's beautiful to collaborate. Mm. It's beautiful to write with other people and to let other people's ideas come into it. And I've actually become quite dependent on it. Mm. You know, because I just think actually, even if you're writing alone, you're not writing alone because there's a little part of you that's Prince and there's a little part of you that's Bach and there's a little part of you that's, mm. you know, mm-hmm. Schnittker and a little part of you that's everything that you've ever loved also in there writing with you. Yeah, yeah. You know? So it, it strikes me with you that you've probably, perhaps this is not something you think about, but you've probably ticked things off your bucket list you didn't know were going to be on there. Exactly. You know, yeah, you've got credits. Completely. You've got credits that include sort of working with Peter Jackson and Neil Finn, mm. today the two New Zealanders mm. of the arts that everyone knows overseas. You know, and um, genius songwriters and and performers and the film stuff. So what's what are you going to do? What's on the list that you need to? You know, as you move more into the classical sphere, do you have goals of things that you? Do you know? My huge bucket list thing was always, there was always a little tiny part of me that hoped maybe one day I would meet Prince. Right. And you got and as I close did, as you did by mm, going to those two shows. And I did. and you know, How I'll close were you? Were you up the front? I wasn't, no I wasn't, yeah. but I'll tell you what yeah. though, when I was playing in LA with Neil, yeah. we did a show at Largo at the Coronet, 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 yeah, anyway, um, and so we were kind of there getting ready and we had everyone and, and Neil was like, oh by the way... Wendy and Lisa might come down. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> and I look, because, you know, yeah. I loved Prince when I was growing up. Yeah, but I yeah. wanted to be Wendy of course, and Lisa. Of course, of course. to be them. Yeah. And, um, and they, I would have to say they've been huge influences on my kind of perception of what I as a female person yeah. could do. Yeah. And as a musician, you know, because I just, they were so incredible as well. And he, yeah, yeah. he loved them for what they were able to contribute. Yes. Anyway. And Neil just kind of throws this one out there, you know, and he knows how yeah, much I love yeah, of Prince. Course. Yeah. And I've, I've had that conversation with him a lot to the yeah. point where he asks me to stop talking yeah, about yeah. it. <laughs> and <laughs> anyway, so he goes, yes, yeah, so Wendy and Lisa might come down. And I was like, I beg your pardon? Mm. And he said, Wendy and, Wendy and Lisa might come down, they might sit in with us. And I said, Neil, I know you think I'm really cool, <laughs> which he doesn't, nobody does, no one's ever called me cool. I know you think I'm a really cool person, but I am not going to be cool if that happens. I am going to urinate, yeah. and I'm going to vomit, and I'm going to run around making strange noises. Mm. Funnily enough, they didn't come down. Right. <laughs> no, but they didn't come down for other reasons. But yeah, yeah. I don't know what I would have done, Simon. Wow. I don't yeah. know what I would have done. Yeah. That's as close, I reckon, as I've ever got to Prince in real life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like to, because sometimes too, uh, you know, I. I you know, when I interview people over the phone, I, you know, I've interviewed some pretty famous people that I've been kind of in awe of, but talking to them on the phone, you know, it's a bit of a chore for them and for me, like, yeah. and, you know, much as you love it, and you get some good things out of people, but I always walk away from it going, like, when people say, oh, what was it like to talk to that person or whatever, or they think you've met them and hung out with them and you haven't, mm. um, I'm always, I always love those connecting the dots things, like, when I talked to Tony Joe White, I thought, wow, I've talked to a guy who hung out with Elvis. Yeah. You know, and that yeah. was cool. And, and you know, just just thinking of those little connect-the-dot things. Yeah. And, and you're not um, part of it yourself. Yeah. But, 
you just there's something there that makes you go, wow, that's that's pretty. It's a pretty crazy world that that can yeah. happen. That and you, you feel, intersect your, yeah, your pathway. That's right. That's exactly and the myriad it. pathways that yeah, exist yeah. in the universe have just happened to kind of go past each that's, other. That's exactly it. And it's yeah. like there's lots I like about Tony Joe White. He's written some cool songs, but I think the coolest thing was him talking about hanging out with Elvis, mm. and I was just like, wow, because that is you know. That is big. Or um, I interviewed that guy Jerry uh, Marsden from Jerry and the Pacemakers, and, oh, yeah. and and that's fine. He was cool, but he talked about hanging out with John Lennon. You're like, wow, that's crazy. That yeah. I've had a conversation directly with someone who knew this guy because these people are like, and that's like princes in that sphere. Yeah. These people are like mythical almost. Yeah. You know, the gods to people. When so yeah, like having that connection. Like if you'd met Wendy and Lisa. Nervous as you would have been about pl- playing with them if that happened, if you'd got to talk I would have been to erupting. Once you'd, been erupting once, you'd got a, once you'd got over the spluttering, like, <laughs> you'd probably find out more interesting stuff about him from talking to them than you ever would from talking to him. That's right? that's true. Yeah. Although I actually, you know, I you, think it would have been, I think it would have been insulting to talk to them about. Sure, him. I sure. Wanted to talk to well, them about exactly, because they're interesting. Yeah. You know, anyway, like they've um, they've made some cool records, oh. and and they've got that Joni fixation going yeah. on. You know, oh, of well, the, I love their music. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of bucket list things, yeah. I do still have a couple of kind of well, what would I call it? I reckon in terms of ambition from yeah. a musical perspective, I just still think that it would be amazing. All I really care about when it comes to writing music is the fact that when you get to the end of it, you think that it says what you meant. Yeah. You know, I just. My bucket list is that I can look back on at least one or two pieces of work and think that is exactly I what that. I meant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I'm still, I haven't done that yet. Like, I've got a couple of big pieces in my brain that are kicking around that maybe yeah. I'll write, maybe I won't, but one day if I ever do, like, there's a requiem I would like to write. Wow, yeah. And if I ever get the time and the resources and the ability to write that requiem and it comes out, and there's so there's so many buts in this kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. L- list of things on the way to the bucket list achievement, but if all of those things come together and then I somehow miraculously manage to write mm. the, the piece I want to write mm. and then I can listen to it in a performance and think that is exactly what I meant, mm. I reckon I'll be able to die happy. <laughs> That's one thing. Mm. The other thing, on the other side of that bucket list, is I'd just like to be able to see... Um, just like to be able to look back on life and think, I, I, I don't regret the decisions I made, and mm. look at my children and see happy, fulfilled children who've turned into adults who are capable of loving other people. Mm. And they're kind of, you know, they're kind of modest, uh, bucket list yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, well, that's just, you know, hopefully that second one, particularly, hopefully oh, anyone wants that. And absolutely. I think, I think the first thing you're talking about applies to a lot of people with regard to whatever they're working whatever on. Whatever it is. Or whatever drives them, you yeah. know. And, but I think, like, I can imagine the the tension and push-pull and frustration for you with regard to that has been that so often you're, you're in, in, a, in one sense or another, a, a writer or performer for hire. Mm. Like you're brought in to, to meet someone else's, not just vision, but someone else's deadline, yeah. <laughs> someone else's audience in some you cases. Can look, you you know, can look like, at it like that, but you can also look at it as being included in someone's creative world. Yeah. Which I think is also, you know, for the best of those, some yeah, of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those collaborations, absolutely. Yeah. When you're having to work quickly and you're doing stuff, but when you're actually invited to someone, especially if it's someone you really admire. Well, you have to have one. You have to have one of those sets of experiences to understand how great it is to have yeah. the other, though, right? Like, yeah. so when you have a, 
a tricky, frustrating, well, that was just work and we got it done, but I don't yeah. feel... Then when you have the opposite, it's only you only understand that it's the opposite because yeah. it's not what you've just had happen, yeah. you know, like... And I, you know, I can remember this one little experience. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet too much, but I was working with somebody and I kind of played them something I'd done and it made them change what they'd done. Wow. And yeah, then yeah. they said, oh, no, that really inspired me to actually change yeah. the song. Yeah. And then I was like, wow, that's yeah, kind yeah. of amazing. <laughs> that's pretty, exactly. Like yeah. Infiltrating someone's, but in the right way. Like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you kind of become a part of, yeah. yeah. You, 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 well, and, and entwined. Wow. Intellectually entwined.